0: The following audio content is a talk given at The Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. I'm Steve Blacksmith. I work with Young Life College. And uh, if you've uh, we not met before, so glad to uh, have the opportunity to speak tonight. I would love to get a chance to, to meet you afterwards. Maybe that would be great. I put this little phone there because... It's good to know when to end. That's always a good thing. And, uh, but um, can they ask a question? Anybody here ever been to a Young live camp? Anybody at all? Okay, uh, That's a bunch of people. That's fantastic. Anybody here ever been to a non-Young Life camp that had a really fun thing that's at a lot of Young Life camps called the Cree Bay? Anybody been on a Cree Bay before? So those of you who have been to Young Life camp, who's been on a Cree Bay? Okay. And you live to tell about This is excellent. Okay. So um, one of the things that... Uh, that I think is excellent about Young Life is that many, many people have come to faith in Jesus Christ um, through the ministry of Young Life. I'm one of those people. I get to speak at a bunch of different churches just through my role with Young Life College, kind of around the country, and and as I've been an area director and led in different parts of the country as well. Every time I speak at a church, I always ask the question, how many people here uh, came to know Jesus Christ through um, the ministry of Young Life or were impacted by that ministry Or you've got a a child or a grandchild or something like that. And it's amazing kind of how many folks. And so, like, I've worked for Young Lab for 22 years, but I'm not saying that in a sort of braggy way. I'm just amazed by it. I think that it's a tool. It's just a tool that a ton of communities have used to pick up and say, look, we care about the the adolescents, the teenagers in our community care about them enough to run towards them with the gospel. But unfortunately, when we come running sometimes to the farthest out as the church, they go running away because they go, ah, the church, it's an institution of old people, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. And we're like, so we fool them. We go as Young Life, and we're like, ah, we're not the church, we're Young Life. And then later we go, psych, we were both. But uh, anyhow, uh, the good news is, as we become friends with them, we want to break down that barrier to be able to say, look, the church is people. It's a bunch of people. And and this is fantastic. One of my favorite questions that comes up all the time. Um, If Young Life leaders, if you ever get a chance to want to be a Young Life leader, I can hook you up with that and help you out here somewhere in Seattle. But Young Life leaders sometimes miss the opportunity. One of the things that we're told over and over is that the basis of Young Life, this relational evangelism, is to earn the right to be heard. I really like that. It's a great idea. It's like instead of just going, let me tell you God's plan for your life, or let me tell you what you should know about God. It's like let me get to know you. How about you tell me? Some of the stuff about your life, because I care. And, and, and one of the things that just, again, that um, I think is true of most Young Life leaders anywhere in the country is that they're just fans of high school and middle school students. They just really love and care for them, and they root for them. And I think that that becomes you know, obvious to the person that they're caring for. And so this whole idea of earning the right to be heard happens. But I always say this, but once you've earned the right to be heard, say something. Say something about what it is. Scripture says it this way, that we need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Like, you could spend all your time loving people, and I'm totally down with this. It's the old, you know, it's been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Who knows who really ever said this or whatever. But it's this idea that preach Christ at all times. When necessary, use words. Okay, that's been sort of morphed down into relational evangelism, of which Young Life's not the only group out there that does relational evangelism but it makes a ton of sense but at some point it will be necessary to use some words for us to begin to say this to give a reason for the hope that we have to in the midst of the brokenness of the kids that we've been loving not shoving anything down their throat but just loving them and caring for them at some point we love them enough we have to say "Um, there's something more and i'd love for you to know about it and if you choose that this isn't for you. I can't make you believe anything that I believe that doesn't work for anyone, but I at least want you to know that I believe it. So, one of the great places where that happens and has happened, happened in my life was when a Young Life leader took me away to a camp. And it happened to be this place called Malibu up in British Columbia, and it's awesome. It's cool. It's this fantastic place, and Later on this year, if you're involved with the Inn, Young Life College, we'll take a group of folks up there over spring break to do work week. And it's awesome. It's great in, the, in, in uh, March, just a little cold, but it's fantastic. And then in the summer, I always say it's where God hangs out on the weekends. Like, it is unbelievably gorgeous. It's fantastic. Well, I went to, to this place, Malibu, with a group of people who had earned the right to be heard in my life, that cared for me, and then I saw and understood, really for the first time, what it meant that there was that I can have life in Jesus' name. Not just be religious, not just know about God, but really know God. And one of the things that young life leaders do is, and we really believe this, is that one of the best ways to bring a kid to life. And that's really what happens there. It's so fun to be in the room at the same time when someone is coming alive, when they're becoming fully who God has created them to be. At least the process has begun. But we believe that one of the best things... To do that is to nearly kill them first. And so we have all these toys at Young Life Camps that are like, they're dangerous. You couldn't, if like, you couldn't have them in your backyard. Like, they, they, Young Life Camps still, some of them have high dives. You can't have those anywhere. You know, like, people don't build things with high dives anymore. And, but we have this thing called the kribe. And I think it's a French word that means death on water. Okay. And I, don't quote me on that. Look it up for yourself. But uh, anyhow, the thing I love about the kribe is you can take You can take an arrogant kid and they can be humbled in like 30 seconds. It's fantastic. (laughs) And then you've got them in a place where God can really get to them. It's fantastic. So I have a few pictures of my favorite Kribe ride ever. The first thing is, so here's the deal. This is when you're on a Kribe, it starts like this. Everybody's like, hey, how's it going? It's going to be a great day. What could possibly go wrong? Now, men and women ride the Kribe, but it's just more fun for me when a bunch of really athletic guys get on. Because there's something like this. They're like, they get on and they say to the boat driver, you can't throw us off this for nothing. And the boat driver chuckles and all that kind of stuff. So so this is, they're like, hey, how good will today be? We'll, they'll, they'll write stories about it. So anyhow, uh, the next shot is there again. So, hey, what could go wrong? You know, this is great. Third shot, I kind of love this. Stuff. Now, this is, okay. There's a, there's a biblical thing that, that is happening here. There, there's a scripture that says that pride goeth before the fall, right? People, they're like, I can... No, I'm invincible. Nobody can knock me down. And then they're getting a little bit cocky. They're just getting away from the dock, and they're kind of like, ah, this is a great deal. And here's the next shot. I kind of love this. Oh, look at all the fun we can have. This is fantastic. It's like, this is great. They have a great young life leader going, hey, let's do this. Let's jump over one another. It'll be really cool. Great picture, by the way. I love it. So, okay. Now it starts to get serious. Okay. They're messing around there, just kind of goofing around. But this actually happens. It's easy to follow the boat when it's going straight. I mean all you do is hold on, but as soon as that thing turns, a boat Help me out here if you're an engineer. But anyhow, it, create, it displaces some water, right? You know, vouch for me here. And that that's called a wake. And even if it's not a big wake, it's something for... The Kribe is like, it's like the Oscar Mayer wiener hot dog just laying on the pond, right? And it's supposed to go straight. And as soon as it has to turn, it doesn't turn very well. So this is what happens. People kind of go flying. So next shot is really good. I love this. Okay. If you hit a wake while the thing is going, I mean, it's just boom. It just shoots you in the air. It's, it's, I love, this guy, look—he's like he's lost his head. It's gone there. It's good, just done. Great, great shot. So, is that the last picture there? I think it is. Yeah, great. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Uh, so um, this happens all the time, and I had this opportunity to bring a bunch of kids to Malibu one time. And the short version of the story is this: we decided that we couldn't be thrown off this boat, and our boat driver was, we nicknamed him Satan, okay, I mean, his name may have been Stan, but we threw in another A, because he did everything he could to hurt us, and you can see in the picture, they make you wear helmets, this is a bad ride to get on, when they make you put a helmet on before it, right, because the water shouldn't hurt that much, but the problem is, it's not the water that hurts, it's the other person's head coming at you at about a thousand miles an hour, because... When, when you fly off the Cree Bay, it's like five people become one, just like that. It's pretty a fantastic deal. So we were doing this, and we had beat the snot out of each other. We were all on the side, and it was cool. In sort of a guy-bonding way where it's like, yeah, it's awesome, and there was a little bit of, you know, a couple people with bloody noses, but not in a bad way, just, you know, I, kinda, I like it when somebody bleeds on the Cree Bay. You're like, hey, shark. You know, just uh, people, freaks them out. <laughs> they don't really think there's sharks in those waters, but you say it, and, you know, they kind of think about it. So anyhow, we're going along. <laughs> And I say to Satan, the boat driver, I say uh, that's not his real name. And I say to him, Hey, we're going to try and pass this kid from the front to the back of the Bay. And his name was Brian Porter, and he wrestled 103 pounds for whatever the weight class, the smallest weight class was. He was he 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 spent most of his life hungry. He would come over to my house. We'd have a Bible study in the morning and I coached basketball and basketball players can eat whatever they want. And he would come there and he'd like lick an apple and look at our food. So it was horrible. He picked the wrong sport. Just a bad sport unless you weigh the perfect weight. So anyhow, he's over with us and but he's but he's small. And you can, and so we called him Little Buddy. That was his nickname. And so we're passing Little Buddy from the front of the crepe to the back. And we tried about three or four times, and he wasn't good at being passed. Whatever happened, anyhow, he was—he would flop around and then he'd fall off. And uh, and uh, so he was planing for a while. and We would pass him back, and finally we got him all the way to the back of the crepe. He's at the very back, and I was at the back. And he grabs a hold of my arms, and he's. We're just I just pulling for all I'm worth to just hold on we kinda of got locked elbows and he's dragging behind the Cree Bay and we're like cheering it's a victory cheer. We've done it, we've done it, it's awesome. The boat stops. They got a video camera up, everybody's kind of going, This is the greatest deal ever, we'll remember this forever. And I'm like, little buddy, stand up. You gotta stand up. Take your victory lap, stand up, and, and you know, wave to the camera, and he goes, I can't. I can't. And I thought he was just all out of breath. And I'm like, Come on, you can do it. It's you've earned it. And he goes, I can't. And I go, Why not? And he's like, I'm naked. <laughs> and so Sure enough, it turns out Little Buddy was not that great in not tying. Like, he would not have gotten, like, his merit badge in that or something. And his swimsuit was about a quarter mile back in the inlet. (laughs) Because the whole time that he was screaming, and we were going about 30 miles an hour, laughter and screaming sound the same at that speed. And, And so we're like, yeah, this is awesome. And luckily, it was, you know, it was the early 90s, and fluorescent was in, so we could see his suit. You know, and I'm like, turn the camera off, and we go back, and we... Because I didn't want to get fired or anything. So we went back there, and, and we got his shorts, and, uh, you know, it was, it was fun. And what was really fun was there was a bit of him that day, that right then and there. The way that, that we laughed and that the whole group laughed together, and, and again, it, it's, not, it's not a young life thing, but it's a part of the DNA that, that is around good young life, is that people are able to have two or three hard belly laughs a day. Like, And not the kind where they have to feel guilty about it the next day. It's not for some joke that they weren't supposed to be laughing at or whatever. It's just this good, clean laughter. And and we're laughing so hard. And I've seen it over and over where you see that kind of leading into somebody putting their guard down, being open maybe for the first time to the God of the universe that they're hearing about kind of in these meetings throughout the week. And what was fun is little buddy really began to become fully alive during that week there, and two nights later, um, he decided to give his life to Jesus Christ, and it was such a privilege to kind of be there, and all of it is part of it, and I tell you that story, one, because it's fun, secondly, because I want to talk about nakedness tonight, that's okay, it's rated G for crying out loud, you know, so anyhow, uh, but uh, I want to talk about that because we're in the midst of this series on lies that we believe, lies that we as Christians believe. And the lie that I want to talk about tonight is this, that we, are not, that we are no longer naked, that we have found a way to adequately clothe ourselves. And it's not true. We'll start in Genesis 3. We'll take a little bit of a pit stop in John chapter 4 um, and, and then talk about just a couple things along the way. But the lie, which is the big lie, goes back to the biggest lie of them all, which is that if you eat from the tree of good and evil, surely you will not die. It's the lie in the garden that was believed, that left us in a position of nakedness, a position where God had to clothe Adam and Eve again, and he has to clothe us again. But the lie is this, that we don't need God to clothe us, that we can do it on our own, that we can somehow fix ourselves, find ourselves, help ourselves, um, make life on our own. It's a lie that's no good to believe, but many of us do. So pray with me. We'll kind of unpack that together tonight. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for... um, Given us the opportunity to be here tonight. Thank you for worship. Um, Just that place where we can, where we admit that you are God and we are not. Where um, even if that's the only time really in this day that we've acknowledged it, we do acknowledge it. Right now we acknowledge it. We acknowledge that we need you, um, that apart from you, we can't understand these mysteries. And pray, Lord God, that um, through the words and thoughts that I've prepared, but more importantly, by your spirit, and you'd even wade through that stuff, that you would help us to understand what you have us to hear, to know, and to believe tonight about what you say about our condition and about what it means if we're naked and what it could look like if we're clothed in righteousness as we walk in faith with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I set my Bible right here. Um, Anyhow, um, just kind of walking along in that, uh, I'm going to start by... uh, Unpacking Genesis 3, just a little bit of it, um, there's a section in Genesis 3 where uh, this word nakedness is used four times. Naked or nakedness is used four different times. The first time it's used, it's a different word in the Hebrew than the other times. And so what's the difference between the first understanding of naked in Genesis, which seems to be good, which is this, that Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and they were not ashamed. You remember that scripture? Maybe you've kind of heard that. Kind of, you know, when you were like 12, you'd, somebody would say it and you'd giggle. It's good. I'm like eternally 12, so whenever I hear that, I still kind of giggle because like God said naked. Anyhow, uh, so, uh, but that naked is different than the other other uses of it, the other Hebrew word for it in the rest of the chapter. What is the difference? Why does it make a difference in our lives? So we'll talk about that a little bit. But just full disclosure, when we were given an opportunity to talk this summer and basically Annika says to me, hey, you can talk about any of the lies of scripture that you want. I'm like, all right. Well, I don't consider myself a preacher. Um, I do get a chance to talk about Jesus a lot to a bunch of people of varied ages, and I really enjoy that. But um, I usually have to say, well, here's what God's been working on in my life. Um, And then I focused on it, and I'll share with you what I've learned, and I've researched it a little bit. But somebody else can tell you more about this subject than I can. Somebody smarter than me can unpack it a little bit better than I can. But I hope, if nothing else, you would know that I've taken seriously uh, my study of it—it's impacted my life, and I'd love to share that with you. If it sort of fans the flame of your own search in this, I think that's great. Um, and I do—if you'd like to talk about it a little bit later, I do. I've studied a little bit. We can talk about some of the questions that might come up. But the full disclosure of how I got to this one is—I actually went and saw a screening just a few weeks ago of um, a movie that's going to come out called Blue Like Jazz. Has anybody ever read any of the Donald Miller books? That's here. Yeah, and it, it's an interesting book. Really a great book, impacted me in a bunch of different ways, and. And Donald Miller, he likes to go by Don now. That's cool. Found that out while I was there. Don was there. And uh, a bunch of these different people that were in the movie, and we got to screen it, and they were like, they made all these caveats where, yeah, the sound's not done yet, and it's not the final cut, and the director was there. and I thought it was excellent. I thought it was um, an excellent sort of period piece of a person going to college, and all the stuff that happens there just happens to be Donald Miller's story through college. But... Um, and so, one, I thought it was well done. Secondly, I think the Lord's going to use it. I think it'll be a play. It, it, it's a movie that we can go to with uh, a number of our friends that may be still exploring the faith because they'll resonate with somebody in that movie, which is kind of cool. So, anyhow, that, that was neat. I was there. And then, so I went home, and I was like, ah, oh, man, I have to read that book a little bit. And I couldn't find it in my shelf there, and I didn't want to rebuy it on the old Kindle yet. You know. So, but I did find Searching for, uh, for God Knows What. So that's a, another book that he wrote. And so I started reading that again. And he does this whole passage, a couple of chapters on Genesis 3, and the idea of nakedness and just where that's left us now. And I, I just couldn't help it because I thought that's what I want to share on because I've believed that lie. I have believed through whatever. Um, you know, I've been walking with Jesus for 23 years now, 25 years now. It's funny because I've been on Young Lives now for 23 years. so. I actually met the Lord before I came on down Life staff. I've been walking with Jesus for 25 years now, and I've been a professional vocational minister for 23 of those years. And the problem is sometimes as we grow up in our faith, we tend to have a distorted view of ourselves. And I realized, at least in that moment as I was reading that chapter, here, I'm like, I sometimes think I've like matured in Christ enough where I can make myself presentable, presentable before the God of the universe. I can clothe myself before God and be presentable. And I knew that that was a lie. I wanted to repent of that lie, and I wanted to dig into why do we believe it, and what are some of the ramifications of that? So, anyhow, in Genesis 3, um, the story uh, starts with the very end of Genesis chapter 2, which says that the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And um, the word that's used um, for naked in that passage is A-R-U-M. The Hebrew word is, I think it's Arum. The reason I spell it out is because the other word that's used for nakedness is E-R-U-M. So, you know, you've got to be a really good Hebrew student and uh, good to know. But the first one, Arum, is means that they were not normally clothed. But there's no connotation of uh, exposure or um, sort of vulnerability um, there's no, certainly no negative sexual connotation there at all. It's not, it's, there's nothing dirty about what's going on. They just weren't clothed normally. And it's really interesting because um, one of what some scholars consider another creation account is in um, uh, Psalm 104. I'm going to make sure i got the right spot there. I'll bring you to that. Um, okay, let me find my little verse there. Sometimes I put my notes... Behind myself and don't help myself at all. But yeah, um, in Psalm 104, the beginning of Psalm 104, uh, listen to this, I'll just read this to you. It says, This, O oh Lord my God, you are very great, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot, rides on the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers. Flames of fire his servant. You can read through the rest of Psalm 104 if you want to this week. It's fantastic. And it kind of parallels the account of Genesis in terms of creation with a little bit of a more poetic kind of stance to it. And pretty cool. But listen to this portion. It says... Um, kind of in the same way, in the same uh, essence of that word, aram, is this. Um, to be clothed is right there. Clothed with splendor and majesty. God wraps himself in light as with a garment. That's kind of the, the idea there is that, um, is that Adam and Eve were clothed. They were just clothed differently than we would be clothed now. They didn't need outer garments, kind of what we would call clothes, but they were clothed in God's righteousness. And so there was no shame. There wasn't a feeling of nakedness, okay? So that's kind of an interesting thing. Then what happens um, after um, they eat of the fruit that they weren't to have eaten, after they're deceived? And there's a lot of questions you could have in here. And, and Miller asks them pretty well in his book. I think they're kind of interesting. He's like, we don't know if in the owner's manual for, like, the beginning of earth, like, there was a note, beware of the serpent. Like, there's no, like, we, d- did they know What a lie was? How should they expect to be deceived if all they had known is kind of this right relationship with the God of the universe? I think there's a bunch of fair, interesting questions there that are totally beside the point. The bottom line is this. What God had told them, they chose something else. Decided, made a decision to look elsewhere other than what God had already shown them. And God had proven himself to be worthy of their trust. Okay, And yet still... Do you ever do that? Has God shown himself to be worthy of your trust in your life? And if you're honest, have you sometimes looked elsewhere for life? Adam and Eve have nothing on us, and we certainly have nothing on them. We can't lord anything over them if we're honest. But anyhow, in this first instant, as they do so, something changes. It's a theological change to be sure, sure, known as the fall of man. Sin has entered in the world, but it's also a relational change. God's in relationship with these two, loves them completely. Really, literally, if you look through the scripture, help me if you can find another reason that God has created us, male and female, other than to have one that is like us, that God says, here's one that is like like me, so that he could pour his love upon us. God was lacking nothing in the Trinity God didn't create out of need. That's not the God that we know. It's not theologically true. And yet God did create. And part of that reason, at least, is um, to be able to pour his love upon us. And elsewhere in Scripture it talks about literally that that we're not only God's handiwork, but that that the story of our lives, what he's done, his goodness for us, is kind of just part of the hall of fame of God's ability to say, look how loving and good I am, that he's poured out his love upon us, and our lives are evidence of that. That's really a cool thing. It's really kind of interesting. But all of it is kind of screwed up in this situation, not just theologically. I now, now know that sin has entered into the world. But relationally, something's changed, and they know it. So here's what it says at the beginning of chapter 3. Well, I won't tell the whole story, but the serpent comes in, and they kind of do this whole thing. Oh, you will surely not die. God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be open, and you will, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so in verse 6, it says this, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, was also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. Different word for naked right there. They realized that they were naked. And from the rest of that chapter, all of the words for naked are this... um, the second one, erum, E-R-U-M, um, which is used in this context, um, total and usually shameful exposure. It's describing somebody who's utterly naked or bare as a result of sin. They have found themselves utterly naked. And here, for the first time, they found themselves without the covering of the garments of God's protection, of his light, of the way that God... Has created them to be seen. And they're aware of it. That must have been an awful moment. To know that everything has changed. And relationally, it had. And only God could fix it. As God enters into the garden again and calls out. So again, just a little reminder if, if you if you haven't read through this story in a while. It says this. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. Well, first of all, they covered themselves. They tried to make their own covering. Okay? to to cover themselves because they felt ashamed. Um, It says this, um, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I can't help myself. I have to stop sometimes in scripture and go, would have loved to have been there. What was it like to walk in the garden in the cool of the day with the God of the universe who is excited to see you? This is a good thing. This is the God. Who has created us, and you can tell by His purpose what His intention is. It's a good relationship. So God's walking there, going, "Hey, where are you guys?" Kind <laughs> of love that. Uh, it's the first known uh, round of hide and go seek. And so, but He found them. That's it. So, and He won. Where are you? And <laughs> and Adam answered. Uh, so Adam answered, said, "I heard you in the in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I I hid." And then the full. Declaration of just the brokenness of their relationship is found in this next sentence. It's an absolutely, it's a lonely sentence for me. It says, and God said, who told you that you were naked? Man. How do you know that you're naked? I haven't created you to feel this that you're feeling right now. You've chosen something that's changed things between us. It says this. Um, so so he said, Who, t- who told you to take it? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then comes the first of many little bits of what we understand about deception. That first of all we try to pretend that we didn't do anything. Then we try to pass it on to somebody else. And if possible, even to a third party after that. So and you you, you recall this, you know the story. The first thing God has asked Adam, Who told you this? Have you eaten of the the fruit of the tree that I asked you not to eat. And what's Adam's response? The woman that you gave to me. This is the first thing that he says. This is just fantastic. Because if you read back just a little bit, the way that he's described, and it ends his description of this once he has named her a woman who's come out of man. And he says this, you are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. It's like the greatest love poem ever. It's like, nobody could ever be closer to me than you are. And right immediately he said... She did it. And then the woman says, the snake did it. Which is, by the way, goes back to a little bit of what Miller says in there. It's a little bit of back to God. You made the snake. The snake did. I mean, I I think that that's true. It doesn't make sense. It's, 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 It's an argument that we can't win, but we do that all the time. Brokenness that's been caused ultimately by ourselves in our lives, sometimes we look back, even if we've gone through a period where we're not so much believing in God, then we're in great pain and we believe in God enough for at least for a few minutes to say, God, this is your fault. Have you ever found yourself in that place? The problem with that place is this. You can't win the argument with God because you know you're wrong and he's right. And the second thing is this. When you're in brokenness, when you find yourself in pain, even of your own creation, The God of the universe, the one that you may be mad at at the time, is the only one that can truly bring you comfort. It's this weird paradox. But even when we feel like God has left us or abandoned us, we feel that, but it's not true. God didn't abandon them in the garden. And he hasn't abandoned you wherever you found yourself in the brokenness even of your own creation. But he's the only one that can truly comfort you. He can handle your anger. He can handle your questions. He can handle your pain if you'll bring it to him. But if we hide... And hope that he doesn't notice us, then we stay broken right where we are. So here's the lie. At least they then come clean before God, and it says this the the description goes on that this says, um, at the end of that chapter, it says this uh, The Lord God, this is in verse 21, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Um, And this is really kind of an interesting thing. So he re clothed them. Now they were already clothed, but they'd clothed themselves. And so he went and, and really sacrificially, and again, some scholars look at this and say that it was a little bit of a foreshadowing of the sacrificial system that would be set up through the law, that so animals were killed and their garments, you know, their, um, their skins were used and God clothed them in a sacrifice, which again is foreshadowing, again, some scholars look at it this way to say for ultimately the sacrifice that the Lamb of God would make for us. But here's the point of it. At least at that point, the lie had no more power. Because God himself had said, look, you're, that's right, you're naked on your own, even though you've tried to clothe, your, clothe yourself. But now I've clothed you again. And we can be in relationship. And something has changed, but I still love you. And he made the sacrifice and then he clothed them. But the lie that we have somehow believed in this day and age, and really throughout, it, throughout history is this, that we're not naked that we just find ourselves somewhere in the midst of history, and this is all there is. And so we clothe ourselves in the things that we think will give us status and security and identity. Miller says it this way, um, and again, in Searching for God Knows What, he says, here's what I think Moses was saying. Men and women are so wired that they get their glory, their security, their understanding of value, their feeling of purpose, their feeling of rightness with their maker, And their security for eternity from God. This makes sense. An external source. God has created us that in relationship with God, we would have all those things. But the relationship is so strong and God's love is so pure that Adam and Eve felt no security at all, insecurity at all where they were. And so much so that they walked around naked. They didn't even realize they were naked. But when that relationship was broken, they knew it instantly. He goes on to say, if man is wired so that something outside of us tells us who we are, and God's presence gave us that feeling of fulfillment, then when the relationship is broken, we end up looking somewhere else. We look to other people to tell us that we're good, that we're, that we're um, okay, that we're right with the world, and that we're eternally secure. The problem is all the things that we're looking at can't give us any of that security. So we're looking somewhere to clothe ourselves, and we stay and remain naked. We can't fix our situation. You ever heard this? I mean, maybe you're, you know, you're heading to college, people are like, this will be good for you. Maybe you've got that crazy uncle, the one that says stuff that other people just think, and then you have the uncle that says it out loud. I hope you find yourself while you're at college. I don't know what that phrase means. It's kind of an interesting thing. or, But I think it's meant by good meaning relatives sometimes to say, you know what? You've screwed up <laughs> a bunch of places along the way, but you're going to discover who you are. And that's true. College is a great opportunity to uh, educate ourselves, to expand our horizons uh, in terms of our intellect, to be exposed to new thoughts, and also to understand and own our adult faith. This is a great opportunity to sort of find ourselves. But taken too far, it's this idea that we can literally find, fix, we can create a world in which um, we stand out as okay, that we can judge ourselves and others in such a way that if we've achieved a certain thing, if we've learned enough, Um, if we've risen in a certain place of status in relational equity with our friends, that we have arrived somehow and that we're okay. And the problem is it's a lie. We're running around naked or in clothes of our own making, and nothing is right between us and the God of the universe. So what do we do? Um, The the interesting thing is, uh, one of the interesting things about this for me is that as we go running around, to find these people, as Miller says, to tell us that we're good, right, okay, and that everything in the world is okay with us and we're eternally secure, who we, find our, who we end up looking to for this validation is a bunch of other broken people. And we do the same thing here at the university. Like, there's people just take for a moment, just a second here. Think of somebody, okay, just be honest, because now I've tricked you. Now you know that the spiritual answer is nobody has it all together, right? But just be honest with yourself think of some people that generally you kind of go, yeah, that's my target. If I can attain that, if I can be in that position at some point in life, it'll be all right. And whether or not you believe that you do that very often, the reality is we mimic other people's behavior. We compromise sometimes our behavior to fit with some other norm. We do this all the time as people transition from the relative safety of high school into the land of nobody's the boss of you here at college and make decisions that sometimes we look back on and go, why did I do that? That wasn't a good idea. Why did I think that was a good idea? Why was I comparing myself to that person to try to fit in? It's part of just the brokenness of who we are. There's this guy named Jake Halpern who wrote a book in in 2007 called Fame Junkies. And kind of the subtitle under the book is why do, uh, or a little bit of an unpacking of what the book is, is why do more people watch the ultimate competition for celebrityhood, American Idol, then watched the nightly news on the three major networks combined. Why do seemingly normal, educated people care about Paris Hilton's dating life? Why do teenage girls, and this is out of his survey, when given the option of pressing a magic button and becoming either stronger, smarter, famous, or more beautiful, overwhelmingly opt for fame? We would rather be famous than successful. We would rather be famous been smarter at, as a population, I'm not saying that this is true for you as you sit here tonight, but I bet you it's been true of you at least at one point or another. In the fame survey, he asked a bunch of these different questions and they're broken down into a few categories and I just want to share with you a couple of them um, to just point out uh, hopefully a little bit of like just the folly of this. It doesn't make sense, but and yet this is the generation that's that really, if it's in 2007, there they could be our classmates right now, right? because they were middle school and high school students, and these, these were their answers. Now they're the people walking along with us, and they're us in our classes and on campus. Um, one of the things is uh, we'd rather be famous and smart. The other one is this. Um, Jennifer Lopez versus Jesus. A part of the survey, students were asked to choose which famous person they'd most like to have dinner with. There was a range of options, including none of the above. Among the girls who opted for the dinner, the least popular candidate was President Bush. He was president at the time. Albert Einstein, sorry, Big Al. Uh, far ahead of them were Paris Hilton and 50 Cent. That's great. Did I say that correctly? My kids will be happy with me. Uh, who tied for third place. Second place, in second place, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's fantastic is there. But uh, taking the cake is Jennifer Lopez. We would rather be, have dinner with Jennifer Lopez. That makes more sense. This is interesting to me. Um, when you grow up, which of the following jobs would you most like to have? Five options to choose from among girls, the, the results were as follows. 9.5% chose to be the chief of a major company like General Motors. 9.8% chose to be a Navy SEAL. 136 chose to be a United States Senator. 23.7% chose to be the president of a great university like Harvard or Yale. And 43.4% of them chose to be the personal assistant to a very famous person. it's comical except it's frightening because again, one youth. So they've grown up a little bit. We hope. And you know, I look at the things that we run after here, even in, I was a member of the mighty Greek system while I was here at the university of Washington, a couple of uh, eons ago. And, uh, But uh, I don't think it's changed all that much. I don't think there's anything that's new under the sun. And some of the things that we run towards and some of the things that we compromise ourselves for and some of the things that we think are okay, we would look back at maybe years later and kind of go, where did that come from? And we're running after, we're comparing ourselves, we're trying to validate ourselves and find our identity, um, but we're looking at other broken people. And if they would reveal truly how broken they were, we probably wouldn't look to them to compare ourselves to. So a little case in point, I want to show you this little clip. Um, I think it's, we find ourselves in an interesting problem. We may not admit that we're naked, but here we are running around looking for clothes. And to be fair, we're looking for designer clothes, right? We're looking for the best things. And um, this little clip here is interesting. In 2005, it's a 2005, it's a little bit older. It's when uh, Tom Brady was with not, uh, who's he with right now? Who's his wife? Right, yeah. Giselle... It's funny that you knew that. You knew that right away. He said, "I'm a football fan, not a supermodel fan." But in 2005, he was dating, but not married, to some other really beautiful person. I don't know who it is. And uh, Bridget Monahan. How's that? Does that help anyone? I think she was another model as well. Um, He had won three Super Bowls at the time, pretty kind of fantastic. And so he's he has this interview with this guy from 60 Minutes, and the guy literally says that we were. He he prefaces as they put in the kind of the they go back and edit, and they say, we were surprised, because of all the things that he had going for him, that he would say this. And here's what, what he said, if it starts up. If not, I've got the transcript, because you never know. You've got to have a backup. But with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean... Maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is... Me, I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football, and I love being the quarterback for this team. And, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Interesting to me in this passage is actually, as you read the tr- transcript, he's like, but me, I'm like, God, there's gotta be something more out there. <laughs> like, and he pauses for a second. Cause like, the first time I, I, that somebody showed me this, I was sort of like, Oh, he's going to get it. We're so close to the right answer here. Me. I'm like, God. I'm like, if you just stop right there, we win. This is a winning <laughs> sentence. <laughs> there's a comma here, right? He says, God, There's got to be something more. And the interviewer says, what do you think that is? He goes, I wish I knew. He says it twice. I wish I knew. I'm out there essentially trying to find myself. Okay, so here's the interesting thing. Totally found out and exposed. If Tom Brady was walking on your campus, was in your Greek system or lived in your dorm, came to this fellowship or walked around and was a friend of yours or an acquaintance or somebody like maybe in the last few years you, you noticed Jake Locker and you kind of walked near him, you're like, I saw Jake Locker today. It's kind of cool. And you were looking at him and know him even because you wouldn't have the benefit of this revelation while he was in college, right? And you would think that guy's got it all together. And certainly once he'd won the three Super Bowls, once he'd reached the zenith of what you can do in football and then had all the other things that kind of came into his life because of it, you'd say, certainly he must be satisfied. Whether or not I think that's the goal, he must be satisfied. And he's like, there's got to be something else. I wish I knew what it was. I wish I knew. I say that only to say, don't drink the water. Don't buy what everybody's looking for. As you head into another year of college here, or if you head into your first year, those of you that are incoming freshmen, learn well. Be exposed to new things. Let your mind be stretched. Be open to the fact that you don't know everything, and there's people that can educate you on things that you don't know if you want to be an engineering student you need to listen and understand the things about engineering that you don't currently know we don't want you building anything later on in life if you only knew the answers to all the odd questions that were already in the back of the book you actually have to understand the concept okay i don't want i don't want the dentist that only like ah well, you know i wasn't you know i wasn't very good on the day that they were talking about numbing you know it's like you know Give me another one, okay? I've had two root canals, and I'm like the numb is good. It's kind of a good sort of thing. All that to say, there are things that you don't know that other people can expose you to. But just because there are people more educated, just because there's people with more status, just because they're even further down the road in life, doesn't mean that at their core, they're any less lost in terms of their identity, in terms of who they are before the God of the universe. It doesn't mean that they're any less naked. You don't have to believe everything, to be open to the education that awaits you. As a matter of fact, I would encourage you to be skeptical of a bunch of things. And instead of believing all those things so readily, look back to the one who maybe, maybe it will be for the first time this year that we really come to know God in its fullness or in fullness for you that you'll begin this relationship with the God of the universe. But if you've been walking with God for a while, I would encourage you this, to doubt the things that your senses can see, the things that you can see and hear and feel and touch in front of you. And remember to keep your eyes fixed upon the things that are unseen. Remember the God who's been faithful to you. Don't be so quick to doubt the God who says, I love you still. I would clothe you again in righteousness. You can be right and whole, and I can give you your identity. Quickly doubt the things that will flash at you brightly. And in the still small voice, find some place in your heart where you can um, try to trust the God of the universe who's been there for you before. Two little things I'll close with this that maybe would help you with this. First one is in John 4, chapter 10. Um, It's this passage with Jesus with the woman at the well. And there's just so much there that's incredible. But two things that jump out to me right away. It makes sense to me that this woman is at the well. Everybody gets thirsty, okay? Now let's move into the spiritual connotation of this well, not just the water that she's actually getting there. Because Jesus moves it, takes it from the physical and moves it very, very quickly into the spiritual. He says this in John 4, chapter 10, Everybody who drinks this water will will become thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Everybody's thirsty. The question is, what well are you going to drink from? And my encouragement to to you would be this. To first ask yourself, maybe before your head hits the pillow tonight, have you even a little bit drunk from the well of the world where at least some of your identity comes from what other people think about you, from the things that you're striving to attain? You fit God in there maybe somewhere, but the, the uncomfortable news, but it's good news, might be this. God won't be applied to your life like sunscreen. God won't and has not asked to be your spiritual advisor but the God of everything in your life. That as we surrender ourselves before him, everything becomes more clear as we find our identity in God. And sure, then we make our way through the ways of of, of this world and the maze of this world. We find ourselves and we're encouraged to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. It's a tricky thing, but it can be accomplished as we walk with the God of the universe. Don't drink the water would be one encouragement. Drink the water that makes you not thirsty anymore. Drink the water that actually bubbles up outside of you and gives life to other people around you. Do you believe that about this year for you? That it's possible not only that you can be fulfilled in your relationship with God, but it's possible that others can find life through the overflow of what you found in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be awesome? Not to just make it through the year, but to thrive. So first thing is drink the right water. Second thing is this. If you find yourself, and maybe it's tonight, admitting that you're naked, Run to God. Let God clothe you. Don't run and hide from God. There's this incredible passage in 1 John 1.9. It's this incredible, really, prescription for this situation. It says this, that if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, part one, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Very similar to what he did in the end of Genesis. He forgave them their sin, even though things had changed. But they admitted it, and then he clothed them again in righteousness. God will forgive us, cleanse us, and make us right with him if we run to him. But if you run from God, all you're doing is running around with a bunch of fig leaves on and nothing changes in your life. Run to God and let him clothe you. And then the final thing is this. If you could pray big and dream big, would you consider the possibility that you could start bringing this living water to a bunch of thirsty people? They're all around you. Don't let their clothes fool you. The reality is they're naked and they're thirsty. And they need what only God can bring. And maybe this year you'll be the only God they ever see. Jesus Christ dwelling in you, the hope of all the glorious things to come, both for you and for those who need to see the life of Jesus Christ. That's good news. It's possible as we turn to Christ.